pray. Father, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. In 1990, if any of you were alive back then and can remember it, there was a marketing campaign that featured a 19-year-old tennis player. He wore a cool headband, often took his shirt off, stepped out of his Lamborghini with a sweet blonde mullet. Andre Agassi was 19 years old, and he was a world-renowned tennis player already at the age of 19. And he launched a marketing advertising campaign for Canon. We were trying to sell the fanciest new cameras on the market. And at the end of this commercial where he had shown us how awesome he is, he says to the camera under his sunglasses, image is everything. Well, we've fast-forwarded some time from Andre Agassi, and our cameras have now become smartphones. Magazines have now turned into Instagram, and celebrities that used to get themselves plastered all over society has now turned into selfies of people putting themselves out there. If then image is everything in 1990, how much more true is it today? And if it's even more true today, what about 3,500 years ago? In the days of Moses, they had a similar slogan, a similar belief that image was everything. Only when they used the phrase image, they weren't just thinking of humans. Images in the ancient world were believed to be sacred representations of the gods. Images and marketing campaigns were meant to communicate who the gods are, who the power behind our existence is, and so they crafted idols. Idols that were made in the likeness of gods. Now, as they made these statues, they didn't make them to physically represent the gods, but spiritually represent the gods. It wasn't about the physical traits, but more about the exaggerated attributes. So take, for example, the story of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2 and 3, Daniel has been swept off from his homeland and plugged into a new society, a place where the Lord God is no longer being named, Babylon. And there, a different king is ruling, King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar has a different idea about image. The image that King Nebuchadnezzar wants to portray is the image of himself as king. Not just king over Babylon, but king over all the world. And this comes to him in a dream. He dreams of a great image, a statue that reaches up to the heavens, 
And the top of that statue has a golden head. The dream troubles him, even frightens him, because he doesn't know the meaning of it. And Daniel comes in and interprets it for him. And he tells him that the golden head is Babylon. But the rest of the statue, Daniel says, is made of different substances, all the way down to the feet, which are the most brittle of all. And he says, even though you're crowned with golden power right now, eventually this image is going to topple. The feet are going to crumble out from underneath it, and a great rock is going to come in and smash it to pieces, which is the kingdom of Christ. Nebuchadnezzar is not very quick to catch on to what God is trying to tell him, though. So what's the first thing that he does after the dream? He goes out, he builds a giant statue of himself. But he won't just make the head gold, he makes the whole image gold. A great image that reaches up to the heavens, taller than any other building, is a statue of the king himself. The image of the gods himself in Nebuchadnezzar. There was a belief in the ancient world that idols were the physical manifestation of the gods. And they could actually function as the gods to communicate, to bring blessing, to bring cursing. Image is everything in those days meant that you better bow down to the images or you would be in trouble. Beauty, fame, sexuality, accomplishment, and power were all communicated by the God that you worshipped. And today it really isn't that far from what they were doing. It's just that we don't have statues. We have pictures and posters. When we go back to Genesis, we find that God is taking what humans will eventually believe and what they will try to do with image. And he is saying, before you were ever made, I am the only true image. And he says in Genesis chapter 20, uh, 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over all the earth. So I'd like to break down the phrase image of God and define it for you in three parts. Okay, three parts that define the image of God. The first is authority. The second is capacity. And the third is dependency. So the image of God as it's portrayed here in Genesis means the authority to act for God, the capacity to act like God, and the dependency to act with God. And if you take only one, and you don't include all three, or if you parse them out, you're going to be missing the big picture of Genesis chapter 1. First of all, it's the authority to act for God, to represent him and stand in his place in this world. Now, this belief in the authority is not that far from other religions. They all have a sense of kingship. Kingship was very much ingrained and central to the religion of the Babylonians with King Nebuchadnezzar, 
or the religion of the Egyptians with Pharaoh. Kings represented the gods, and they were there with their golden images to say what's good and what's bad. They were there to make laws, to make sure the people were doing what the gods wanted them to do. So if you worshiped the image, you worshiped the king. Only there's a serious difference here. In Genesis chapter 1, well, as the other kings interpreted the image to mean they were God, Genesis 1 says they're like God. So all these other kings and religions believed that they were God himself on earth, able to determine what's right and wrong, whereas this authority in Genesis 1 says we're to be like God, not God himself. It says that we're to have dominion over all the earth, to subdue it and fill it, to be fruitful and multiply. So with this dominion comes authority and responsibility. Another difference from this religious text to other religious beliefs was that in Genesis 1, the authority is given not just to one person on top, but it's given to all humanity. It says it's given to male and female. That God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God is delegating his power. The Lord God is a God who delegates. Like you might see an ambassador being delegated. The president decides to send an ambassador to a foreign country and he delegates his authority into the hands of that ambassador. That ambassador carries the authority of the president. Or a delegate for a church conference. If you're ever elected as a delegate to go to a CLC convention, you're elected not to represent yourself, but to represent the church who sent you, to represent their thoughts and wishes and their beliefs as well. So the picture of this authority is more of a stewardship. It has the sense of a royal kingdom, a dominion over all the earth, but it's a stewardship that we're to cultivate and care for this world as the image of God. That's the authority that's given to every one of us and with this authority to rule comes also a capacity. The capacity to rule in God's image, which means that we as humans are to be like God. In how we treat our neighbor, in how we govern society. In order to not only have the authority, but also the capacity to be like God, you have to know God. This is the knowing part of the image of God. The reason that King Nebuchadnezzar does not rightly represent God is because he doesn't know him. He knows only his own God, the God of himself. As a result, later in the story, God has to teach Nebuchadnezzar who he is. He sends him a second dream. And in the dream... Nebuchadnezzar sees a great tree that's grown up and it's shading all the land. 
glorious in its majesty and beauty, and then it's cut down. An angel is sent from heaven to chop it down and to bind its roots to the earth. When Nebuchadnezzar wakes up from the dream, Daniel comes to him and says, the meaning of this dream is that you're going to be cut down and you're going to become like a beast of the field. And Nebuchadnezzar goes mad. He loses his mind. And he's seen out in the grass and in the fields and in the wilderness with a great beard, long hair, long fingernails, and he's eating the grass and weeds of the field. What's happening as God plays this out is he's showing how when power to use the image of God gets corrupted to the point that we're only serving ourselves, it makes us like beasts. It's why humans are capable of such great atrocities and evil. They're given all this freedom, this authority. They're delegated out from God to go and multiply and subdue the earth. And what do they do? They start wars. They rape. They steal. They use their power only to serve themselves. And they become like beasts. Now there's a beast in every one of us. There's this capacity to act like animals. And every one of us has it in us. There's definitely a point being made in Genesis 1 when humans are created on the sixth day. Because what else is created on the sixth day? It's not only humans. It's the beasts of the field. There's something on the sixth day with humans that is going to be in common with animals. In other words, we're all flesh. We're mortal. We have instincts to eat and drink, to procreate. Several times in chapter 2, it says that animals are dependent on the earth and humans are dependent on the earth for its food and its shelter and its warmth. And so there's this capacity in us to become like animals. And the problem is that for so many who do not know the Lord, that's all there is. But we know the sixth day meant something more than that. Not only were humans created from the dust of the earth like animals, but they were also created with the breath of God. God breathed into Adam his life, the life-giving, animating power of our soul. So God created man in his own image, which means that not only do we have a flesh, we also have a soul, a spirit, a consciousness. We have a capacity to know God the way that animals will never know God. To know him in relationship, to know him in his love, to know him and think through these questions of why are we here and what does this mean and what is God like? This is why the first commandment was so crucial and important for Israel. That God said he cannot be reduced into the images of animals. Instead, his image was supposed to be represented through us. 
We are the living idols, if you want to put it that way. The living images to represent who God is. That means ruling the way that he rules. And the only way you can avoid the path of Nebuchadnezzar to just become like a wild animal in your instincts is to commune with God spiritually, to know him, to meet with him, to learn from him, to learn what he thinks about being fruitful and flourishing and having family, to know what he does when he subdues this world, not for his own ends, but when God subdues this world, it's for our blessing. So he breathes into Adam a new instinct that's in us as well, an instinct to pray, to know that life is more than mere food and drink. It's about relationships and love and faith. So you've seen this capacity of the image of God can go two directions. On the one hand, the image of God allows us to do great good to create amazing and beautiful things to order and direct blessings for other people to think through challenging questions and come up with solutions so there's potential for great good but there's also potential for great evil for destructive and horrible things and the question that Genesis is asking us and the story of the Bible is are humans going to act like mere beasts or are humans going to learn what it is to be like God? By God doing this, he's taking a risk. God is taking a risk when he creates man in his image. It's kind of like any time you decide to delegate some responsibility, any time you tell your kids to, to do something that you're not going to take care of yourself or somebody at work or somebody at school. You're taking a risk because those people can let you down. They can mess it up. God plants a tree in the Garden of Eden that we'll talk about next time, and that tree is representing these two different ways, these two different paths between what's good and beautiful and amazing and is going to prosper humanity and what is bad and evil and going to corrupt and hurt mankind. And will Adam and Eve know what choice to make? God is risking his love. And what he is anticipating is that when Adam and Eve are facing that temptation to be their own gods, to make their own choices on their own, that they will turn to him. Because the third way that the image of God is, is known and understood is that it makes us dependent on God. The image of God does not separate us out as our own gods to do what we want to do on earth. It binds us together with the true God, spiritually, in our heart. It means we have to depend on him and that everything we go through in life is meant to be gone through with God, partners with him in our daily life, 
That's what Adam and Eve are supposed to realize. That's what Nebuchadnezzar never realized. And that's what so much of the world is missing, which is why the image of God gets polluted and corrupted. Adam and Eve do not represent the image of God because they don't depend on him. And so they fall into sin. And then you see the image corrupted, worse and worse and worse, as humans continue to have this freedom and authority, and yet not depend on God to carry it out. That's what leads to the flood, finally, where humans have corrupted it so badly that God has to cleanse the earth, and there's only one family left that's depending on him. Because humans have this sinful nature that has now infested our animal side, our flesh, because we have this corruption, we can never carry out the image of God the way that it was intended to be done. Instead, God has to raise up another sun and another tree. This time, God sends his own son a part of his own being. He sends Jesus into the world. And when Jesus comes into the world, he is the image of God, the image of the invisible God, the image of the creator, bound together with his father in every way, and yet showing us through his human body what we were meant to be. When Jesus teaches his disciples what it is to rule in his kingdom, he says, we're not like the Gentiles. We're not like Nebuchadnezzar, who serves his own interests, who lorded over others in order to get them to do what you want. Instead, he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve you and to give his life a ransom for everyone. The tree that God raises up is the tree of the cross, and the tree of the cross is the total capacity for good, and for evil. It's the capacity for Jesus to represent God's image by loving us more than any of us have ever loved anyone. The capacity for the most beautiful thing ever done in history to be done, for him to give up his own life for our sins. And yet at the same time, the cross demonstrates the capacity for human evil to put to death the one most innocent person that's ever lived in order to maintain their own power, their own control. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Jesus is nailed to it. But in doing this, in, in facing the ultimate badness of the image of God together with the ultimate goodness of the image of Jesus, He's able to wipe it out, to redeem us from our fallen nature and our corrupted hearts. Which is why Paul picks up on this in Colossians chapter 3. And he says that God has given us a new man. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put off the old man 
with his practices and put on the new self, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's interesting to read Andre Agassi reflecting back on his career. And he's been interviewed and has a book out there where he talks about those years in the 90s where he was told that image is everything. And he reveals that during that time it was one of the greatest identity crises he ever had. That in fact, the image wasn't really him. He hated playing tennis. And you know what? The mullet was fake. And it wasn't until he threw off the mullet and revealed that he was actually balding and started playing more genuinely the way that he wanted to do it that he won the U.S. Open. You see this amazing capacity then in being genuine. But in discovering yourselves, In discovering who you are as the image of God, remember, the image is not outward. It's not about how you look in the mirror, how you look to other people. It's about what God has redeemed you to be. The image of his own being. To know him better and better in your authority to act for him, in your capacity to act like him, and in your dependency to act with him. Amen.